Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hey, it's Alan here, and since you love listening to the ongoing history of new music podcast, I want to introduce you to another great podcast from the Curious Cast podcast network called History of the 90s. Host Kathy Kanzora goes inside the stories that defined a decade, from the birth of online dating to the Menendez brothers to the L.A. riots and more. Enjoy this sample from an episode on comedy, from stand-up to sitcoms. You can subscribe for free to the History of the 90s on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Since the dawn of television, comedians have frequently made the leap from stage to the small screen, including in the 90s, when there was a massive boom in the number of stand-up comics starring in their own TV sitcoms. Thanks to the success of The Cosby Show and Roseanne, networks began searching comedy clubs looking for well-established stand-up comics they could build shows around. Suddenly, every big network was adding at least one or two stand-up sitcoms a year. But not all of the shows left a mark, like Seinfeld, Home Improvement, and Ellen. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and over the next two episodes, we'll revisit some of the hits and misses from the 90s. We'll look back at what could only be described as a comedy feeding frenzy in Hollywood, and how it all came crashing down. This is the story of how stand-up sitcoms went from boom to bust. In 1987, Marcy Carsey and Tom Werner, the executive producers of The Cosby Show, were looking to bring a no-frills family comedy to TV. They turned to Cosby writer Matt Williams to come up with a script about a blue-collar family. Opulence dominated TV at the time, with lavish soaps like Dallas and Falcon Crest, and sitcoms that followed upper-middle-class families like The Cosby Show and Empty Nest. It was a pretty radical idea to center a show around a salt-of-the-earth family of factory workers from the Midwest. For the lead role, the team signed comedian Roseanne Barr, who caught their attention after appearing on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson to perform her stand-up routine. She was kind of not known at all, certainly not nationally. I believe she was out of Denver at the time. When she went on The Tonight Show... When Johnny Carson was the host, that was sort of the holy grail for comedians was to get on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. That's Paul Brownfield. He was the TV critic for the LA Times in the 90s. He says Roseanne was just what the network was looking for. First of all, she wasn't glamorous. She sort of was working class. Everything about her seemed very authentic. And, you know, her persona was the domestic goddess. But there was one challenge. Barr was a comedian. She had no acting crud. So the team thought it was imperative to pair her up with a skilled actor. For that, they looked no further than larger-than-life figure John Goodman, who had grabbed attention on Broadway and had just played an escaped convict in the Coen Brothers' quirky comedy Raising Arizona. Roseanne Barr told Entertainment Weekly in 2008 that the former football player was the only person who read for the role. She said, there were more planned, but the second I met that guy, I fell in love with him. According to Brandon Stoddard, who was president of entertainment at ABC at the time, the network was desperately looking for a hit. So with the leads in place, the pressure was on to deliver something magical. 
And Roseanne did not disappoint. When the show went to air on October 18, 1988, the Connor family was an instant hit. 21.4 million households watched the premiere, making Roseanne the highest-rated debut of that season. Roseanne chronicled the tumultuous life of the Connors, a working-class family. Barr's character was not your typical mom. She was pretty brash, even caustic at times, and the family regularly worried about money. Yet Roseanne, Dan, their kids Becky, Darlene, and DJ, along with Aunt Jackie, managed to thrive as a loving and compassionate family. And that attracted a loyal fan base. Paul Brownfield says Barr's character was quite different than the typical female sitcom character that appeared on shows at the time, shows like Friends. You know, it was about young, good-looking women in cities trying to sort of live their dream or whatever it was. And Roseanne was stuck in the suburbs with a family and miserable, you know? So I think that really played well against what most networks were selling. But right from the beginning, there was trouble behind the scenes on Roseanne. For the premiere, the cast and crew members gathered at a screening party to watch the first episode live on ABC. When the credits flashed up on the screen, Barr realized for the first time that the created by credit went solely to writer Matt Williams. In 2008, Barr told Entertainment Weekly that she basically lost it. She didn't understand why she wasn't credited since the show was built around her actual life. And that soon caused huge problems on set as Barr developed a burning hatred for Williams. She detested that he was in charge and pushed back often by refusing to say certain lines, throwing tantrums, and eventually walking off the set. When the situation escalated to the point where it was unworkable, Carsey and Werner were forced to pick between Williams and Barr. And of course, the domestic goddess won. Williams was asked to leave in the middle of the first season. Despite the conflict, the show was ratings gold. It was regularly in the top three of the Nielsen ratings and remained in the top 20 until its final season. After Williams left, Barr added her new husband, Tom Arnold, to the writing team. Arnold also played a reoccurring character on the show, but he was better known for the drama he caused backstage. Arnold basically served as Barr's henchman, executing her often crazy demands and routine firings. The couple exerted much of their power over scripts, rewriting after each read-through, causing tension in the large and constantly changing writing staff. Barr also dominated the tabloids with her wild relationship with Arnold. And who could forget, she was involved in what can only be described as one of the worst moments in sports. When in 1990, she walked up to the mound at a San Diego Padres baseball game and gave a screaming, spitting rendition of the Star-Spangled Banner. Despite all of the controversy, Roseanne was hitting its creative peak with provocative storylines, like DJ's masturbation obsession, Becky seeking birth control pills, Roseanne's PMS, and Darlene's first period. 
you should be really proud today because this is the beginning of a lot of really wonderful things in your life. Yeah, cramps. <laughs> well, I'll admit that's one of the highlights, but... These issue-driven storylines became some of the best-remembered, most-loved episodes in TV history. Which is why it's shocking that despite its sharp comedy and segment-busting storylines, the series was never even nominated for a Best Comedy Series at the Emmys. But both Barr and Laurie Metcalf, who played Roseanne's sister Jackie, eventually walked away with Emmys for their performance on the series. After Barr and Arnold split up in May 1994, the show slid into some surreal territory. Who can forget season five's running joke in which each of the Connors appears in a different scene in the same long-sleeved egg-printed shirt with a large chicken on the front? This happened the whole season with zero explanation as to why. Then the stories got soapier. Roseanne Connor had a fourth child and Dan had a heart attack. By season eight, viewers were bailing on the show. And then, in a bid to go out with a bang, Barr dreamed up a premise-busting storyline for the final season, season nine. The usually cash-strapped Connors won a massive lottery prize. Roseanne! Roseanne, where are you? I've got to tell you something! Where's my baby? What? We won the lottery! This is the winning lottery ticket! I've got it right here! Remember, you told me to watch it on TV! Critics and fans said the lottery win was the shark-jumping moment for the show. But wait, it got better, or actually worse. The series finale aired on May 20th, 1997, and it threw yet another twist at viewers. Barr, in a voiceover, revealed it was all a dream. Actually, it was all a fantasy. The whole season was nothing but the fantasy of her depressed blue-collar character. The Connors hadn't won the lottery, and Dan had actually died from the heart attack he suffered at the end of season eight. For Barr, this last episode represented her total control over the show. Even the rest of the cast had no idea about the game-changing ending. After the show was finished, Roseanne lived on in syndication and drew in a new generation of viewers. Then in March 2018, it returned to television with a reboot— the debut of the new and improved Roseanne had 18.2 million viewers, which made it the highest rated comedy episode on any broadcast network in nearly four years. But the party didn't last. The show was canceled two months later after Barr went on a racist Twitter rant against Valerie Jarrett, a former advisor to President Barack Obama. In its place, ABC launched a spin-off called The Connors, which carries on without the matriarch of the family after she was written off the show. In the end, Roseanne was killed off by an opioid overdose. Like Roseanne Barr, Jerry Seinfeld also had a blossoming career as a comedian long before he starred in his own TV sitcom. And he too gained notoriety after appearing on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Here is a young comedian who works... Uh... He works frequently at the Improvisation in Los Angeles, and he's been working on the road with Anne Murray and Andy Williams. Would you welcome Jerry Seinfeld? Jerry? 
We wouldn't even be talking about 90s TV sitcoms if it weren't for Johnny Carson. The Tonight Show on NBC was a huge springboard for several comedians who would eventually make the leap from stand-up to TV sitcoms in the 90s. The act that Jerry Seinfeld performed on Johnny Carson and the act that he became known for was mainly built on his observations about the madness of life's idiosyncrasies. And to this day, Jerry's act is all about the minutia of life. So it's not surprising that the show he went on to create with fellow stand-up Larry David was simply an adaptation of those observations into a 22-minute TV episode. The difference between Seinfeld's show and Roseanne Barr's show was he essentially played himself, a stand-up comedian living in New York, whereas Barr was playing a character she had created, which is the more traditional format for a stand-up sitcom. When NBC approached Jerry Seinfeld and Larry David in 1989, the network wasn't actually looking for a sitcom. They asked the writing duo to write and produce a 90-minute late-night special. Instead, they wrote a 30-minute script for a pilot. The pilot was called The Seinfeld Chronicles and first aired in 1989 as a late-night special. See, now, to me, that button's in the worst possible spot. The second button literally makes or breaks the shirt. Look at it. It's too high. It's in no man's land. You look like you live with your mother. Are you through? I don't actually recall considering the button. Oh, you don't recall. And a little Seinfeld trivia for you. The pilot didn't even include Elaine, and Kramer was called Kessler. After the Seinfeld Chronicles aired, NBC knew they had something. It pulled in a decent audience, but nobody could really figure out what to do with it. NBC just wasn't sure if they wanted to make it into a full-fledged series. But Rick Ludwin, the head of the network's entertainment division, was a big fan. So he scrounged up the money from his own department and the budget from a scrapped Bob Hope special to fund an uncommonly short four-episode season one order. The rest was history. I think any you know conversation about Seinfeld being a hit has to begin with the fact that it was only put on the air by NBC very reluctantly, and there were no expectations for it. So it, in a way, like, baked into its history is the fact that it's not like it was put on the air and everybody immediately flocked to it. They didn't. But, you know, once it caught on, it caught on like wildfire. And then, of course, it just seemed like, okay, here's the formula. You know, find a really sharp comedian and build a show around it. The show about nothing was built around a group of fussy, self-absorbed people who obsessed over the minutia of daily life. It went on to become one of the most influential TV shows of all time. It took a while for the public to pick up on the revolutionary style of the show, but within three years, Seinfeld became one of the biggest comedy hits in the USA and served as the linchpin of NBC's must-see TV Thursday night lineup. It eventually spawned 180 episodes across nine seasons and was nominated for 68 Emmy Awards and the winner of 10. During its run, Seinfeld ranked either first or second in the Nielsen ratings from 1994 to 1998. In 1996, the TV Guide went so far as to argue that Seinfeld was the best sitcom of all time. Not only did Seinfeld usher in a new era of TV comedy, it also introduced us to a lexicon of catchphrases and Seinfeldisms. 
There are so many good ones. No soup for you. Boy, these pretzels are making me thirsty. A Festivus for the rest of us. Yada, yada, yada. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I just couldn't decide if he was really sponge-worthy. He's nice, but of a close talker. I'm out. The writing was a big part of Seinfeld's success, but so was the cast. The foursome of Jerry Seinfeld, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, Jason Alexander, and Michael Richards are synonymous with the 90s. I told you that the show was revolutionary, and that's because it did a couple of things differently than other sitcoms of that era. Before Seinfeld, most sitcoms broke down into an A story and a B story, and the surrounding material could take the form of a so-called runner, a joke that continued throughout the episode and told a very loose story, but didn't do much more than that. Seinfeld blew all of those conventions out of the water. Let's take a look at one of the most famous episodes, The Contest. In it, each character has their own storyline, all four of which converge in the final moments to create a joke that's larger than its parts. You caved? It's over? You're out? Oh my God, the queen is dead. I figured you'd cruise at least through the spring. What happened? It was, uh, John John. And according to Paul Brownfield, the show did something else that was out of the norm. For a network sitcom, they went a lot of places. Like the sh- like a typical episode had like eight different, let's say, locations. You know, yes, there was Jerry's apartment and there was the coffee shop. But, you know, if you watch a given episode, it's kind of true. Like that show moved around the city in ways that sitcoms which are typically just in boxes um, of two or three sets, don't. Not only did Seinfeld find humor in the mundane, but it opened the door for the TV anti-heroes that came after. The mobsters of The Sopranos, Breaking Bad's meth-cooking Walter White, and the four entitled 20-somethings on Girls. The characters in Seinfeld didn't evolve, and they were funnier because of that. As Larry David would often say on set... There was no hugging, no learning. On Christmas Eve 1997, when news leaked that Jerry Seinfeld was canceling the show, effective May 1998, America was shocked and newspapers published major front-page obituaries. People magazine declared, A stunned nation prepares for life without Seinfeld. NBC reportedly offered Jerry Seinfeld $5 million per episode to keep it going, But the star's mind was made up. It was not a question of money, but of timing. He wanted to end Seinfeld when it was ahead. A comedian at heart, he looked to the old comedy adage, always leave them laughing. For many, the expansive hour-long finale, which was watched by 76 million people, was a slightly disappointing climax for most. An abomination for others. I guess a bit of a spoiler alert here, but let's be honest, it's been over 20 years, so I think I'm safe. Seinfeld ends with the four friends going to prison for violating a Good Samaritan law in Massachusetts. Jerry, Elaine, George, and Kramer witness an overweight man being robbed, and instead of helping him, they relentlessly mock him. That sounds about right. But here's something you might not know. It's something I noticed while researching this episode. The final episode ends with the exact same joke that opened the very first episode. See, now, to me, that button is in the worst possible spot. Really? Oh, yeah. 
The second button is the key button. It literally makes or breaks the shirt. Look at it, it's too high. It's in no man's land. Haven't we had this conversation before? You think? I think we have. Yeah, maybe we have. Of course, after Seinfeld ended, the cast went on to other projects, some with great success. Julia Louis-Dreyfus went on to star on two other critically acclaimed comedy series, The New Adventures of Old Christine and Veep. And arguably, she's become one of the greatest comedic actors of all time. Louis-Dreyfus has won a total of 11 Emmys, eight for acting and three for her role as executive producer on Veep. Despite a successful career in film and stage, Jason Alexander never really managed to repeat his Seinfeld level of success in television. And as for Michael Richards, well, when Seinfeld ended in 1998, you may remember that like Jerry Seinfeld, he returned to stand-up comedy. But in late 2006, a video of him launching into an expletive-laced racist tirade at audience members was posted online. And because of the significant media coverage of the event, Richards announced his retirement from stand-up early in 2007. As I mentioned, Jerry went back to where it all started, the comedy club. He toured for many years, worked on new material, and wrote books and films about it. And of course, there's the web show Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee, which was picked up by Netflix in 2017. One final note on Seinfeld. Co-creator Larry David went on to star on his own series, Curb Your Enthusiasm. David previously refused to make a Seinfeld reunion, but he thought it would be funny to do it on Curb because it would be the perfect way to do it, but not really do it. In fact, the whole season revolves around a fictionalized reboot of the original series. The original sets were used to reconstruct Jerry's apartment and Monk's Cafe, with Jerry's apartment updated to reflect the 11 years that had elapsed since the finale. The episode on Curb Your Enthusiasm finally gave fans the Seinfeld ending they had always hoped for. So after the success of Seinfeld and Roseanne, TV industry reps looked to comedy clubs in Hollywood and New York for the next big thing. Casting agents, talent managers, and TV development executives attended shows at places like the Laugh Factory and the Comedy Store two or three nights a week and watched up to 20 comics a night. Making more sitcoms, and in particular stand-up sitcoms, was a no-brainer for the networks. I mean, I think at the time, sitcoms were perennially in the top 10 uh, most popular shows. You know, you can make however many, 25 to 30 of them a year. If they're a success, they're big business. Not surprisingly, comedians struggling in cities around Canada and the U.S. migrated to Los Angeles, hoping to get their big break. Tim Allen, originally from Michigan, became the star of the hugely popular 90s sitcom Home Improvement after he was spotted by Disney executives Michael Eisner and Jeffrey Katzenberg at the Comedy Store in Los Angeles. I'm happy to be in California, although I'm a little upset with this avocado thing. I mean, everywhere. It's avocado this, avocado that. Everybody, you want an avocado with that? Uh, I don't see. I'm just buying a shirt. I don't see the reason why. (laughs) Shortly after seeing him perform, Disney offered Alan his own sitcom, created by writer Matt Williams, who you may remember from Roseanne. The original title of the show was Hammer Time, but after several brainstorming sessions, it was changed to Home Improvement. 
Originally, Tim's co-host was going to be a character named Glenn, played by Stephen Tobolowski, a character actor you may know from Groundhog Day. But at the time, Tobolowski was unavailable to film the first several episodes due to previous commitments. So they created Al to be a brief stand-in until Tobolowski became available. Then when Richard Karn crushed it as Al, he was added to the cast permanently. If you remember the last show, we were promised a wood-sniffing demonstration by our own Al Dare to be Dull Borland. <laughs> Blindfold in place, Al? Yes, it is, Tim. Okay, step in position there. Ready? Yes. Aim, fire! <laughs> <laughs> Just check in if you're breathing, Al. That's all I'm doing. If you were a teen in the 90s, you may or may not have had a crush on Tim Allen's wise-cracking middle child, Randy Taylor. Home Improvement was the breakout role for Jonathan Taylor Thomas, the 90s teen heartthrob who went on to voice young Simba in The Lion King. But things didn't end well between Tim Allen and his young co-star. Thomas left the show in the last season, saying he wanted to focus on school. But Allen felt burned by it. He later said, Jonathan said it was about going to school, but then he did some films. That's actually true, but for the most part, Jonathan Taylor Thomas did focus on his studies, and though he did some minor guest roles here and there, the young actor graduated high school and then went to Harvard University, where he studied philosophy and history and spent his third year abroad at St. Andrews University in Scotland. In 2010, he graduated from the Columbia University School of General Studies. Now, we can't talk about home improvement without mentioning two secondary characters who were fan favorites. First, there's Wilson, the advice-dispensing neighbor whose face was always hidden by a fence. Hey, Wilson. What are you up to? I'm tending my tulips, Tim. A little late in the year for that, isn't it? Well, I'm forcing them. How, by squeezing their bulbs? <laughs> For eight seasons, the audience never saw anything but the top half of Wilson's head. There were a bunch of fan theories behind Wilson's covered face. Everything from him being the father of Alan's kids to him being in witness protection. The real reason? Well, it's pretty simple. As a child, Tim Allen held regular conversations with his neighbor, separated by the same kind of privacy fence, and all he could ever see was the top of his neighbor's head. And another popular secondary character, of course, was Lisa the Tool Time Girl. She was played by none other than Pamela Anderson, who left after two seasons when she was cast on Baywatch. You might not know this, but Ashley Judd was actually cast as Lisa the Tool Girl first, but she pulled out just before the show's pilot episode was filmed so she could pursue a movie career. Home Improvement was one of the most watched TV shows on the air in the 90s, and it attracted some very high-profile cameos. Legendary NFL quarterback John Elway, boxer George Foreman, Jay Leno, The Beach Boys, Oprah Winfrey, Mario Andretti, and Rodney Dangerfield all made appearances. By its eighth season, Home Improvement was in a ratings decline, but it was still pretty popular. The producers were interested in keeping it going, they wanted at least one more season, and they were prepared to write some pretty big checks for their two stars. Allen was offered $50 million to keep playing Tim Taylor, 
And Patricia Richardson was offered $25 million to keep playing Tim's wife. But they both turned it down. The final episode of Home Improvement aired on May 25, 1999. When it ended, the show had run for eight seasons and 203 episodes. Since then, Alan went on to star in Last Man Standing, and in 2015, more than 17 years after Home Improvement ended, Alan's former co-stars Jonathan Taylor Thomas and Patricia Richardson made cameo appearances in an episode which also featured other nods to Home Improvement, including a moment when Alan's character talks to his neighbor from opposite sides of the fence, obstructing the view of the neighbor's face. As for the other Taylor kids, well, Taryn Noah Smith, the youngest son, Mark, has not acted since 1999. Zachary Ty Bryan, who played the eldest son, Brad, has appeared on shows such as Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Smallville, and Burn Notice, and the 2006 movie The Fast and the Furious Tokyo Drift. By the mid-90s, networks were all in on the stand-up-to-sitcom format. There were a flood of shows featuring comedians who transitioned from the club to TV. In 1995, all six broadcast networks, including the WB and UPN, had at least one show with a comic front and center. Seven of ABC's 15 sitcom slots were filled by stand-up shows including Roseanne, Home Improvement, Grace Under Fire, All-American Girl, Ellen, Hanging with Mr. Cooper, and On Our Own. Meantime, Fox had a George Carlin sitcom and Martin. NBC had Mad About You and The Mummies, along with Seinfeld. There are a few reasons that this format was so appealing to the networks. Greg David, TV critic and partner at TVA.com, says comedians were a safe bet. You know, you've got somebody that, that has the chops to be able to perform. Uh, so, I, and there's also, a, to a certain extent, there's that built-in audience as well. But certainly, you know, if you have a known name of, of somebody that's, you know, a, a veteran of the, of the stand-up circuit, then yes, it's, it works better than, than perhaps if you just had a nobody that you were trying to, to build a, a TV show around. Roseanne and Home Improvement writer and creator Matt Williams told Vulture in 2013, a fully realized stand-up routine is like a home run. You're getting an entire world and a constellation of characters. Building a show around a stand-up took care of three time-consuming and stressful challenges all at once. You got a concept, you got jokes, and you got a star. Some of these shows were successful, others weren't. But before we talk about some of the big bombs, let's talk about a couple more game changers. Martin, starring stand-up comedian Martin Lawrence, premiered on Fox in 1992. And the show about a Detroit-based radio host, his girlfriend, and their hilarious friends was a near-instant hit. Lawrence told Entertainment Weekly that landing the show with Fox was the biggest thing in the world. He couldn't believe it. When Martin first aired, Fox was still a young network and was trying to compete with the likes of the established powers of ABC, CBS, and NBC. Something that helped put them on the map was the way they leaned into the growing influence of hip-hop. James Murdoch helped launch the highly respected hip-hop label Raucous Records before selling it to his father, Rupert Murdoch. And Fox shows like In Living Color, Living Single, and New York Undercover were instrumental in making Fox the massive fourth network of the 90s. 
So Fox was intrigued by Martin Lawrence when they saw him host HBO's popular and influential Deaf Comedy Jam, a stand-up comedy show produced by Russell Simmons. Fox quickly brought on Lawrence to co-create and star in his own show. Martin was a success right from the start, averaging 11 million viewers in its first season. And the New York Times praised the show's quirkiness and its willingness to embrace social issues in episodes. Martin was an important cog in Fox's attempts to rival NBC's must-see TV Thursdays. And it catapulted Lawrence from a stand-up comedian on the rise to the headliner of blockbuster movies like Bad Boys and Big Mama's House. The show seemed unstoppable, and it helped that hip-hop royalty would stop by to hang out with Martin. Cameos and guest stars on the show included Snoop Dogg, Christopher Kid Reed, salt and Peppa, Biggie Smalls, and Outkast. The show actually became known for its guest stars, and people tuned in every week to see who else might show up. There was also an incredible chemistry between the main cast. And Martin, well, he was an incredible talent. He played nine characters on the show. Jerome, Dragonfly Jones, Roscoe, Bob from Marketing, Elroy Preston, Otis the Security Guard, King Beef, Mama Payne, and Shanene. Shanene, what are you talking about? I heard Martin on the radio. He was real good, real good. So I know you get ready to go in there and dump him, but why don't you just set it right over here to 40 what, all right? Because I know how to tame that man, all right? But the show and its star weren't without controversy. In August 1996, at the peak of his popularity and fame, Lawrence was arrested for carrying a loaded handgun in a suitcase at Hollywood Burbank Airport. Months earlier, he had also been detained by police for wandering into traffic and screaming curses in a Sherman Oaks, California neighborhood. No charges were filed in either case, but the problematic behavior by Lawrence was overshadowing his talent. Then in November 1996, Lawrence's co-star, Tisha Campbell, accused the comedian and producers of repeated and escalating sexual harassment, sexual battery, verbal abuse, and related threats. Campbell refused to come on set for the remainder of what ended up being the final season of the show. She eventually agreed to return for the series finale in May 97, but with the condition that the show's star and co-creator couldn't be present when she was on set. As for the lawsuit, it was ultimately settled out of court. These days, the show is regarded as a cultural touchstone, part of a 90s golden age when black sitcoms ruled television. A Different World was just coming to a close, but The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air had just premiered and Living Single would arrive on Fox just a year after Martin's debut. Today, Martin lives on in reruns and in the music of many of today's rappers who grew up watching the show. Everyone from Kanye West, SZA and Chance the Rapper have referenced Martin. Big Sean made a music video that was a painstaking replica of the series, complete with a cameo from Lawrence himself. And Kendrick Lamar, well, he walked out of an interview because the host said she'd never heard of the show. As for Lawrence, after the show, he went on to star in the popular Big Mama's House movie franchise and almost lost his life doing it. In 1999, he slipped into a three-day coma after collapsing from heat exhaustion while jogging in 100-degree temperatures in preparation for the role. Thankfully, he recovered. 
And as for a series reboot, well, rumors have been circling around for years. Most recently, Tisha Campbell told Entertainment Tonight that there is a definite possibility as long as schedules align. You can't talk about 90s trailblazing TV without mentioning Ellen DeGeneres. The talk show host began performing her comedy routines at coffee shops in the late 70s and early 80s in New Orleans. And like other stand-up comedians who wanted to make it big, she moved to L.A. and started doing the circuit there. In 1986, she got her big break when fellow comedian Jay Leno suggested booking agents from The Tonight Show starring Johnny Carson check out her act at the Improv in Hollywood. They liked what they saw, and Ellen was invited on The Tonight Show, where she performed her now-famous phone call to God routine. Yeah, hi, God. This is Ellen. (laughs) Ellen. Degenerous. Degenerous. (laughs) What's so funny? (laughs) No, I never thought of that. It does sound like that, doesn't it? Uh, I get it. Listen, if you weren't too bit... Sure, hold on. Somebody's at the gate. Yeah, just sing along to your tape. (laughs) Following her set, Carson motioned for Ellen to come sit and chat, earning her the distinction of being the only female comedian to be given that honor. Ellen then began making regular appearances on the talk show circuit, including performances on The Late Show with David Letterman and later with Greg Kinnear. But it wasn't until 1994 that the show that would become Ellen went on the air. It was actually initially called These Friends of Mine in the first season, but the name was changed to Ellen the following season to avoid any confusion with another new sitcom you might have heard of called Friends. Ellen had moderate success, partly because of DeGeneres' style of observational humor, which at the time was often referred to as a female Seinfeld. Yet her show struggled to find a clear creative direction over its first few seasons. They had a rotating cast of characters, swapping out cast members as they tried to find the right combination. Then in 1997, Ellen shot into the spotlight with a game-changing storyline. The Puppy episode was a two-parter, and it saw DeGeneres' character, Ellen Morgan, a cheery, neurotic bookstore manager, come to the realization that she's a lesbian. The episode was co-written by Ellen and originally aired on ABC on April 30th, 1997. The title was used as a code name for Ellen's coming out so as to keep the whole thing a secret. But there was another reason for the name as well. When the network was approached with the coming out idea, one executive reportedly suggested that Ellen Morgan get a puppy instead. The network eventually came around, but the writers couldn't resist calling it the puppy episode. When word got out about the impending coming out episode, hate mail poured into Ellen's offices. Reverend Jerry Falwell and televangelist Pat Robertson publicly mocked DeGeneres as Ellen Degenerate and joined others in signing a letter that decried the show as a blatant attempt to promote homosexuality. At one point, a bomb threat was even called into the studio. In addition to her character coming out in the episode, DeGeneres also publicly shared that she was gay in a coming out interview on Oprah and in a Time magazine cover story titled, Yep, I'm Gay. 
The iconic episode was taped in front of a live studio audience and was watched by an estimated 44 million viewers as Ellen Morgan struggled to say who she really was. This is, this is so hard, but I, 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 I think I've realized that I am... I can't even say the word. Why can't I say the word? I mean, why can't I just say... I mean, what is wrong? That why, why do I have to be so ashamed? I mean, why can't I just say the truth? I mean, be who I am. I'm 35 years old. I'm so afraid to tell people. I mean, I just... Susan, I'm gay. It went on to win an Emmy for writing, a Peabody as a landmark in broadcasting, and a handful of other accolades. But in addition to the accolades, DeGeneres and ABC executives faced a storm of criticism over the episode. An ABC affiliate in Birmingham, Alabama, refused to air it. And fearing controversy, some of the show's sponsors withdrew as advertisers, including Chrysler, General Motors, Johnson & Johnson, JCPenney, Domino's Pizza, and McDonald's. The human rights campaign and a cruise line that focused on a lesbian clientele tried to buy the spots instead, but ABC declined their ads. Several more episodes that season had gay themes, and Ellen returned the next year ready to tell stories about a gay woman. But the show was forced to add parental advisory warnings when Ellen Morgan had a same-sex kiss. According to ABC's president at the time, viewership ended up declining because the show became a program about a lead character who was gay every single week. The comedy was canceled in 1998, one season after the coming out episode. Despite the cancellation, a barrier had been broken. Ellen was the first lead in sitcom history to openly acknowledge her homosexuality on air. Up to that point, only a handful of gay characters had been seen on television, and none of them were series leads. Since Ellen ended, gay characters and actors on shows like Six Feet Under, Modern Family, and Pose have become a regular part of the TV landscape. DeGeneres' career took a hit after the cancellation of her show, but she rebounded in 2003 when she portrayed Dory the Forgetful Fish in Finding Nemo. That same year marked the debut of her hugely successful talk show, which remains on the air today. But as of this recording, the future of the talk show is up in the air. There are investigations taking place by the network after a number of former and current employees have come forward with allegations of abuse on her popular talk show. Okay, we are out of time and there is so much more to talk about. And don't worry, I haven't forgotten about Everybody Loves Raymond. We'll get to that show, plus some others you may have forgotten about. Some good ones and maybe some not so good ones. So make sure you join me again in two weeks to hear more about the 90s stand-up sitcom boom and bust. If there's a show you want covered, drop me a line. You can reach me through Twitter at 1990s History. I'm also on Instagram and Facebook. And you can always email me directly at 90s at CuriousCast.ca. That's 90s at CuriousCast.ca. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to our show so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, please don't forget to rate and review us. We're available for free at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you stream your audio. And you can always listen at CuriousCast.ca. 
This show is hosted and co-written by me, Kathy Kinzora, and Dila Velasquez, our producer. Sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s.